Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. Today, we're joined by a very special guest who I will introduce in just a second. As well as exploring her leadership journey, we're going to touch on her views on the role of the professional regulator in supporting the nursing and midwifery professions, and also how to affect culture change and genuine co-production in practice. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund. And before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder that if you enjoy our show, please share it with your friends and subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others to find us and it helps us to improve the show. So today I'm delighted to welcome Andrea Sutcliffe, OBE, Chief Executive and Registrar of the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Andrea, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. It's my absolute pleasure to be here, Helen. Thank you so much for inviting me. You obviously have a hugely impressive CV from a trainee management accountant at a district health authority, all the way to your current role, the chief exec of the Nursing and Midwifery Council, and obviously a few stops in between those roles. But what's the unifying thread that links together the different roles that you've chosen throughout your career journey so far? And what is the passion that drives you forwards? The answer is the same. So the connecting glue that holds all of that career together is people. People and wanting to make a difference for people who are using health and social care services. And that is absolutely my motivation as well in wanting to make sure that uh, I use the experience of others, but it also the experience of uh, myself and my family, bringing people's stories to bear in terms of understanding what we can do better and how we can make sure that people get the health and social care services that they truly, truly deserve. Whether it was managing services at a local level for children and women or old people services, mental health care of older people, or on a national stage, setting the framework with guidance at NICE or um, inspections at the Care Quality Commission, or now supporting um, the biggest professional group within the health and social care system. Um, it's all about making a difference for people. You talked about the kind of bringing people's stories in to kind of improve what you can do better. And I love that because that links, I think, to some of the stuff we'll come on to in a bit on uh, the co-production that I think you bring a lot into your work. So um, great to hear that there. I wanted to spend a bit of time reflecting with you on the work that you do at the Nursing and Midwifery Council in terms of supporting those two professions. And I guess in recent years, the professions have faced huge challenges. They've been struggling with high vacancy levels. And then obviously the pandemic has placed huge stress on staff. So is there a certain point in terms of the level of vacancies and pressure where the ability of staff to meet professional standards is to some extent compromised? And how does the regulator, the professional regulator, manage that? It's a really important question, Helen. And I think that it's nurses, midwives and nursing associates that we regulate and support um, for the Nursing and Midwifery Council. And there are real acute pressures that are impacting on all of those professions. And they existed before the pandemic, but they have been absolutely exposed and exacerbated by the pandemic. The way that I think as a professional regulator, we can respond to that is to, to look at it in, in three particular areas. 
What do we do in our regulatory role? What do we do to support and what do we do to influence the environment within which our professionals are working? So from the regulatory perspective, one of the important things that we do is set standards. So I think that um, the first bit that we can do to assist our professionals is to be clear about that standard and our expectations. But I do know that the professional regulator looms large in people's minds as the organisation that could take away their PIN number, their professional identity. That is sometimes a real worry. And what we need to be able to do is to demonstrate back to the professionals on our register, not that we're condoning poor standards of care, because that's absolutely our fundamental reason for being is to protect the public. But what we have to be able to do is say we understand that context. We understand the pressures that you are under and we will take that into consideration if a concern is raised with us. So you know, if the issue that comes to us as a referral into fitness to practice is something which is systemic, could have happened to anybody on that shift and at that time, then that's what we need to be looking at, not the individual. And then the second thing that we need to be doing is we need to think about the support that we can provide. How do we make sure that professionals know what's expected of them, that we're assisting them with the tools that they, they can have? So I'll take the pandemic as an example. When all of that started in March 2020, which seems a very, very long time ago now, one of the things that we put in place was a coronavirus hub on our website to make sure that all of the information that we thought that our professionals needed to have was available, readily available in one place so that they could uh, go to that and, and get that assistance. And then last but not least is... We sit on a gold mine of evidence. One of the things that we do, for example, is we um, have an annual survey. We ask people who have left the register, why have they left the register? And it's important for us then to share that information with the chief nursing officers, with other policymakers, with the governments, so that they understand what are the issues that are impacting on the professionals on our register, so that they can use that insight to make the differences that they need to make. So we need to regulate well, we need to support well, and we need to use that insight to influence. If you've spotted through fitness to practice that there is clearly a systemic issue, would you ever be explicit that care is being compromised because there's a systemic issue and you as the professional regulator are limited in terms of what you can do? So we are a professional regulator. We are not a trade union. We are not a political lobbying body. So we do have to understand the boundaries. But we also have to understand that we can use our authoritative voice in an appropriate way. But I don't think it starts with government. I think it starts at the local level because very often these are um, uh, individuals that are getting referred to us and the issue may well be an issue that it is easier for the organisation to refer an individual to us rather than to address the systemic problem that they might have. It could be cultural, it could be uh, uh, issues of bullying and harassment or 
failure to support people who have spoken up about um, their own concerns about poor care. So we need to make sure that if that is happening, that we are feeding that back at that local level. If, however, it's a bigger issue, we need to engage in that. So it's not about lobbying. It's about actually getting engaged, being part of the solution, not part of the problem. So we need to be working, as indeed we are, with people like um, the chief midwifery officers in the four countries, talking to them about what we're seeing, what they're seeing, what are the improvements that we can ensure are being put in place to assist those maternity services to improve. And then the issue, I think, around government or indeed national policy makers is how do we ensure that um, those folk understand the importance of the standards that we are setting, the expectations that we have, the importance of the education, for example, that our nurses, midwives and nursing associates need to be able to do the incredibly important but often very difficult and challenging job that they have to do. So I think there is a really key role for us around establishing good relationships so that we can share that information, that we can be cognizant of their issues um, and what's impacting, as indeed we have over the last two years through the pandemic and work very well together to try and put greater support into the system, but to make sure that I can go and knock on the door and say, you know, Hello, Ruth. Um, Ruth May, Chief Nursing Officer for England. This is an issue that I'm seeing that I think that we need to discuss. And the great thing about the three years that I've had now at the Nursing Midwifery Council is that those relationships have been established. We do have those conversations and they are fruitful. I'm just fascinated by the kind of, you know, the different roles and the different, I guess, the tensions that are sometimes inherent in the stuff that you do. So as a professional regulator, on the one hand, or kind of part your core role is to promote and uphold the professional standards to protect the public. But you also, you've articulated a role in terms of supporting and valuing the professions. How do you balance those two aspects of the role? The professional regulators often get a very bad press. <laughs> uh, either we are punishing kind of hardworking uh, professionals and it's absolutely outrageous, or we're favouring those, those professionals at the expense of the public. And you have to have a really good balance. So we have to make sure that the interests of the public shape what we do, that we give them the opportunities to enable that to happen, that we listen and we respect the issues that they are bringing to us and that we provide support to them in doing that. Absolutely critical. But equally, I do not think that we get safe, effective and kind care by making nearly 745,000 people scared of their regulator. It just means that people get defensive. It means that they don't raise concerns when they should do to ensure that uh, improvements are made. We need to make sure that the professionals on our register can have confidence that the way that we are going to um, conduct our regulatory role will be um, balanced, will be proportionate, and will be appropriate in terms of the circumstances that they find themselves in. And I think that you have to have those, those balances and it can be difficult. <laughs> you know, um, If it was easy, they wouldn't need us. 
You touched earlier on bullying and harassment and discrimination in the NHS. I think the latest NHS staff survey shows that 31.5% of all nurse respondents classifying as black and minority ethnic reported having experienced harassment or bullying from their own colleagues, compared to 26.5% of nurse respondents classifying as white. And I know from research that your organisation published in 2017, you found that black and minority ethnic nurses and midwives are more likely to be referred to you as the professional regulator. So obviously, the regulator isn't making those referrals itself. But what is the role of the regulator in terms of trying to get to grips with that issue? It's a very important issue for us. And we have updated that research from 2017 and conducted a further evaluation, which we published in 2020. That identified exactly the same problem again, that people from black and Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds much more likely to be referred are disproportionately more likely to be referred by employers, interestingly, not necessarily by the public. And so we are now doing further research around why is that? So that we can get under the skin of what is really going on, so that we can feed back um, to uh, the employers things that we that we think that we they may be able to do themselves. I think that the first thing that we've got to do is understand the problem, and that is what we're trying to do. I also wanted to explore your views on kind of the role of regulation in health and care and and how to do regulation well. So your current and previous roles have both been in regulatory organisations, so I can tell you're a big fan of regulation. Um, And I guess I think when you took on your role at the Nursing and Midwifery Council, it was going through a difficult time. Part of your commitment when you started was to help it rediscover its humanity. So what did you mean by that? And I guess more broadly, what does humanity look like in practice at a professional regulator? It is all about people. Regulation is about protecting the public and it is about the professionals who are delivering those services. So the critical thing that we have got to be is person-centred and remembering that what we do impacts on people every day of our lives. So one of the ways that I try to set the tone for this I meet every new person who comes to the Nursing and Midwifery Council to work. I do the first uh, session in their welcome event. And one of the things that I say to them in that welcome event is every single one of us in that room will have somebody in our friendship or our family circle that day who will have their lives touched by a nurse, a midwife or a nursing associate. And so what we do in setting those standards, getting people onto the register, you know, looking at concerns when they are raised with us, impacts potentially on every UK citizen. And it's really important that we remember that. And then I look at the group that I've got and I've asked them already as to what the job is and why they've come to um, the Nursing Midwifery Council, what drew them to us. And I pick on the role that might seem the most remote to a nurse or a midwife or a nursing associate. So maybe somebody who's working in our procurement team or or governance or something like that. And what I do is I make the connection from their job to the difference that that makes to my dad who had a district nurse who came to see him at the weekend. 
And I think that one of the really important things for us in any organisation is for us to understand that what we do makes a difference for people, to see that and to see why it is so important that we work hard and that we are effective in what we do. So that my colleagues within the Nursing and Midwifery Council can see what difference we make to the professionals on the register and the difference that they make for the public. What I really notice as you're speaking is the passion that you have for it, Andrea, which is great because just it comes across so clearly. So you you talk about people and that brings me on to the kind of co-production stuff. I've seen you talk passionately in the past about the importance of co-production and involving patients and service users. So from your perspective, is that an essential ingredient of good regulation? And I guess here I mean both from your experience in the quality regulator, the Care Quality Commission, and the professional regulator, the Nursing and Midwifery Council? Yes, it is. So if you look at the fundamental reason for Nursing and Midwifery Council, our statutory duty is to protect the public. It's there in the law. That is what we are here to do. And yes, we do that through our professionals, through setting those standards, through enabling them to come onto the register, supporting their revalidation. But actually, all of that is to make sure the public are protected and that they are getting the kind, safe, effective care that they have every right to expect. So if we're going to do that, then we need to understand what that means for the public. What are the standards that they would expect? Actually, quite often when you talk to the public about the fact that we exist um, to protect them as the professional regulator of nurses, midwives and nursing associates, and remembering that nurses are the most trusted profession in the UK, some people turn around and say, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> They're fantastic. They're wonderful. They'd like you, um, you know, how are you heartless bureaucrats to be kind of trying to hold them to account for these things? So some, sometimes when we have, we've had these conversations with people who go, yeah, well, we, we kind of think that you should be there, but we just expect it to be done well. You know, that's all that we want. We, we don't want to, to worry about the detail of it. There are others, however, thank goodness, because they are wonderful, who do want to get engaged. Sometimes um, they have had poor experiences. Very bravely, they bring those poor experiences to us, sometimes through fitness practice and sometimes as a, um, uh, as a consequence of wanting us to think about the standards that we're setting and how we respond to that and help us to understand how we can do um, the job that we do better. Just back on the um, the kind of co-production and involving patients and service users, you talk about that, that clearly the Nursing and Midwifery Council, you're doing a lot of work on that and that's brilliant. I guess, am I wrong in thinking that is a shift in terms of professional regulators in general and that previously there was a slightly more paternalistic attitude in terms of standards and how those were informed by service users themselves? The, the, the couple of things that we've been building on is about making sure that when we're developing standards, we are talking to the public about what those standards are. So the development of our future nurse, our future midwifery um, uh, standards, they were informed by discussions with um, with the public uh, to help us create that. And when I came into post and we were developing the strategy 
for 2020 through to 2025. Again, we talked both to the public, but also to organisations representing people who were using health and social care services. And I do remember somebody at one of those meetings going, this is fantastic. Never been to a meeting like this before with a professional regulator. Really, really want to engage. So there are some good things that we've already done. But what we're trying to do now is to make sure that this is systemic with us. It's consistent, that we do it all the time, that people see it's not just a project around the development of a particular standard. It is the way that we do things and they can expect it to be the way that we do things. So just thinking about we're coming back, I guess, to organisational culture, I'm fascinated by what goes wrong in an organisation's culture for it to get to a place where incredibly poor care, in essence, becomes acceptable or at the very least is tolerated and not challenged by others when it occurs. So thinking back to examples such as that of Mid Staffordshire, NHS Foundation Trust, although there are more recent ones, but where care was found to be unacceptable in some cases, inhumane. But I think in those scenarios, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is to try to blame one individual. And then we discover that it's more systemic than that often. So what's your take on what happens to an organisation's culture that it can reach a place where care has become dehumanised? Well, we could spend... <laughs> You know, um, the next two or three hours discussing this, and there's lots of different aspects. But let me focus on one particular area, which I think is leadership. There is a really important role for leaders to set a tone that does not tolerate that poor care and does not tolerate poor behaviour between uh, colleagues either. You know, we know that that the culture of incivility, you know, between um, uh, uh, members of a multidisciplinary team, you know, has a direct impact on the performance of the members of that team, and therefore on the care that people receive. So, so I think that there is something for leaders to be to be very clear about their expectations of the culture of the organisation, their focus on people both the people who are using those services, but also the people who are working in those services. And that we really think about um, how we ensure that people are able to connect with the purpose, the common purpose that they have in delivering good care. And it comes from the top. It comes from the top in terms of setting that expectation, that tone, that culture, and making sure that the positive things that happen are celebrated and recognised um, and that where people are coming forward to identify issues that need to change, that they are supported and encouraged to do so and that where there is poor behaviour, where there is poor practice, that people are enabled to improve and to strengthen their practice. It's not about taking folk out and hanging them out the windows by the toenails. It is about making sure that you're thinking about how can you create the conditions and the environment for them to deliver good care rather than for them to accept um, the poverty of care that sometimes we see. So I wanted to to end really by exploring your leadership a bit more. So you've been at the Nursing and Midwifery Council for three years now. So what are you most proud of achieving during your time so far? You look pensive. Mm, 
Hmm, gosh. I think I am most proud of how we have responded to the pandemic. That has been a real collective effort across the entire organisation, pulling together and making a difference. And one of the reasons why I'm so proud of that is because it came off the back of the work that we'd done in my first year to develop the strategy and also for us to develop a new set of values for the organisation. And those values were about us being fair and about us being kind, about us being ambitious and about us being collaborative. And what's been fantastic is that those values that we agreed as the pandemic was hitting in March and April 2020 are the values that have seen us through. So in being fair, we have tried to ensure that in expanding the register, we've done that in a way that is fair to people who are coming onto the register, but also to people using services. We've not compromised on our standards to such an extent that we've exposed people to poor services from that point of view. We have tried to be kind. I mean, we, you know, in the very first wave of the pandemic, we um, paused on a number of our investigations, just concentrated on the really, really high priority areas so that we could enable people to give their all to the response to the pandemic. We've been ambitious because we've tried to constantly think about what more can we do to help? What more can we do to support people? What more can we do to ensure that the public is, is served as well as it can be in these really difficult circumstances? And none of that would have worked if we hadn't been collaborative with all of our partners and worked together within the organisation. So I guess that's, I guess that's what I'd say I'm most proud of. And so you summed up the the values of your organisation uh, in four words. So it was kind, fair, collaborative and ambitious. So I was just wondering, Andrea, if you were to sum up your values in four words, would they be the same as the Nursing and Midwifery Council values? They would be pretty consistent, Helen, I would say. I mean, Obviously, as the chief executive, you, you might you might get to have a little bit of say in the shaping. Um, we did a lot of collaboration on it, though, I have to say, um, through the development of the strategy, both with uh, professional partners, um, uh, the public and, and our colleagues within the NMC. But um, fairness in terms of justice always been a part of you know, what I've wanted to achieve. I, I I've always been ambitious for the organisations that I work for and for their purpose um, to make a difference. And I think that that's been really, that's absolutely driven me on in terms of wanting to um, to, to make that difference, to be, uh, to, to, to improve. I think that, I mean, collaboration, I love working with people. One of the things, if you'd asked me what I've hated about the last couple of years, it's sitting in this little room um, and having to do most of my work um, via a computer screen. You know, we've still been able to collaborate and collaborate in different ways, but nothing beats working with people in, 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 in real life. It really doesn't. And I think that, you know, to be kind, I think... That has been something that I think is really important is, you know, treating people with dignity and respect. It is important. Uh, it is important. And I guess I'd, I'd add on a, a value of being authentic. 
because that's a little bit more personal, isn't it? Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't kind of talk about a, an organisation necessarily being authentic as one of its values. But I think that there is something about as an individual being authentic, bring my whole self into the role so that I can enable others to bring their whole selves into the work that they do. So I think that I would add authenticity in as well, if I was allowed a fifth. You are allowed a fifth, Andrea. And I I love what you said about collaborative and the emphasis you put on that there because um, I think if we were to do a word cloud of your answers during this podcast people would come out really in the middle people would just be right there so it really does come across how much you enjoy collaborating and working with others so quick question around challenges what's been your biggest challenge as a leader if I speak personally rather than you, because there's loads of challenges. I mean, I've got loads of challenges. I could go on all day about the challenges of, um, you know, we've got vacancies. We've got a fitness to practice caseload, which is delayed because of the pandemic. That's a challenge. We've got, you know, people wanting us to do all sorts of different things and, and other people wanting us to do entirely the opposite thing. So, you know, there's lots and lots of lots of challenges. But I think as a leader, there is something about you and I think perhaps as a, a as as somebody who is a woman who comes from you know a, a working class background and you know, the imposter syndrome of you know am I really doing this <laughs> am, am I doing it right um am I kind of making the difference that I want to make am I supporting my team appropriately am I kind of you new know, really focusing on the right things um making the right calls um so I think I, I guess the biggest challenge is me just constantly questioning myself um, about whether I'm doing the right thing or not and making sure that I, I keep focused um, and I keep on going um, with the things that we need to do. Thank you for sharing that, Andrea. And I'm, I literally was a bit jaw-dropping because I never would have thought you felt you felt imposter syndrome. <laughs> so as somebody who feels it, I just, I, yeah, wow, you don't come across as as having that, but then that's that's just how we how we all are, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, it's interesting. I had a conversation about this with somebody very recently. And I think you have to embrace your imposter syndrome sometimes, because actually, in some senses, that little voice that's sitting on your shoulder is the voice that's sitting on your shoulder and making you do better. And as long as you don't let it knock you too sideways, um, as long as you don't, and, and thank you so much for that feedback, um, uh, that you don't kind of display it to people. And, uh, and because I think one of the things that leaders have got to do is to give people hope, to give people confidence. Um, and actually, if um, I was constantly standing going, oh, should we do this? Or should we do that? You know, I mean, that's not necessarily going to help people, but you can use that voice to help you to do a better job. That's a great piece of advice. And sorry, as a final question, if you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to yourself as you were starting your career, what would it be? To make the most of the opportunities. There were a couple of times in my career where I think mm, maybe if I'd been a bit braver, maybe if I'd kind of pushed a little bit harder there or, or, or done that differently, then perhaps um, I could have made more of a difference in a different way or whatever. I think it's about you know, make the most of the opportunities and also do something earlier than I did do. So um, about 2006, I started working with a coach, um, which uh, has been brilliant and she's wonderful. But I think I probably should have done that earlier. 
you can never ever have too much good advice from somebody who independently you know not your partner not your best mate um not somebody not your boss um you know but somebody independently whose only job is to make you more effective that i think i should probably have done earlier in my career Thanks for sharing that, Andrea, and really useful advice, for, well, certainly for me, but also for others. And uh, thank you for sharing that. So uh, thank you for being with us today. It's been such an honour to have oh. you on the podcast, and I've really loved our time together. So thank you. It's been lovely talking with you, Helen. I've really appreciated it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for today. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Kings Fund account. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode, Jonathan Holmes, Shilpa Ross, Mark Doughty and Ian Ford. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We very much hope you can join us next time.